Section 16 of The Rainbow This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Halper, Summit, New Jersey The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence Chapter 6, Part 2 Suddenly she dried her tears. She must get the tea ready. She went downstairs and set the table. When the meal was ready, she called to him. I've mashed the tea, Will. Are you coming? She herself could hear the sound of tears in her own voice, and she began to cry again. He did not answer, but went on with his work. She waited a few minutes in anguish. Fear came over her. She was panic-stricken with terror, like a child, and she could not go home again to her father. She was held by the power in this man who had taken her. She turned indoors so that he should not see her tears. She sat down to table. Presently he came into the scullery. His movements jarred on her as she heard them. How horrible was the way he pumped, exacerbating, so cruel, how she hated to hear him, how he hated her, how his hatred was like blows upon her. The tears were coming again. He came in, his face wooden and lifeless, fixed, persistent. He sat down to tea, his head dropped over his cup, uglily. His hands were red from the cold water, and there were rims of earth in his nails. He went on with his tea. It was his negative insensitiveness to her that she could not bear, something clayey and ugly. His intelligence was self-absorbed. How unnatural it was to sit with a self-absorbed creature, like something negative ensconced opposite one. Nothing could touch him. He could only absorb things into his own self. The tears were running down her face. Something startled him, and he was looking up at her with his hateful, hard, bright eyes, hard and unchanging as a bird of prey. "'What are you crying for?' came the grating voice. She winced through her womb. She could not stop crying. "'What are you crying for?' came the question again, in just the same tone. And still there was silence, with only the sniff of her tears. His eyes glittered, and as if with malignant desire. She shrank and became blind. She was like a bird being beaten down. A sort of swoon of helplessness came over her. She was of another order than he. She had no defense against him. Against such an influence, she was only vulnerable. She was given up. He rose and went out of the house, possessed by the evil spirit. It tortured him and racked him and fought in him. And whilst he worked, in the deepening twilight, it left him. Suddenly he saw that she was hurt. He had only seen her triumphant before. Suddenly his heart was torn with compassion for her. He became alive again, in an anguish of compassion. He could not bear to think of her tears. He could not bear it. He wanted to go to her and pour out his heart's blood to her. 
He wanted to give everything to her, all his blood, his life, to the last dregs, pour everything away to her. He yearned with passionate desire to offer himself to her utterly. The evening star came and the night. She had not lighted the lamp. His heart burned with pain and with grief. He trembled to go to her. And at last he went, hesitating, burdened with a great offering. The hardness had gone out of him. His body was sensitive, slightly trembling. His hand was curiously sensitive, shrinking, as he shut the door. He fixed the latch almost tenderly. In the kitchen was only the fire glow. He could not see her. He quivered with dread lest she had gone. He knew not where. In shrinking dread, he went through to the parlor, to the foot of the stairs. Anna, he called. There was no answer. He went up the stairs in dread of the empty house, the horrible emptiness that made his heart ring with insanity. He opened the bedroom door, and his heart flashed with certainty that she had gone, that he was alone. But he saw her on the bed, lying very still and scarcely noticeable, with her back to him. He went and put his hand on her shoulder, very gently, hesitating, in a great fear and self-offering. She did not move. He waited. The hand that touched her shoulder hurt him, as if she were sending it away. He stood dim with pain. Anna, he said. But still she was motionless, like a curled-up, oblivious creature. His heart beat with strange throes of pain. Then, by a motion under his hand, he knew she was crying, holding herself hard so that her tears should not be known. He waited. The tension continued. Perhaps she was not crying. Then suddenly relapsed with a sharp catch of a sob. His heart flamed with love and suffering for her. Kneeling carefully on the bed, so that his earthy boots should not touch it, he took her in his arms to comfort her. The sobs gathered in her. She was sobbing bitterly. But not to him. She was still away from him. He held her against his breast, whilst she sobbed, withheld from him, and all his body vibrated against her. Don't cry, don't cry, he said with an odd simplicity. His heart was calm and numb with a sort of innocence of love now. She still sobbed, ignoring him, ignoring that he held her. His lips were dry. Don't cry, my love, he said in the same abstract way. In his breast his heart burned like a torch, with suffering. He could not bear the desolateness of her crying. He would have soothed her with his blood. He heard the church clock chime as if it touched him, and he waited in suspense for it to have gone by. It was quiet again. My love, he said to her, bending to touch her wet face with his mouth. He was afraid to touch her, how wet her face was. His body trembled as he held her. He loved her till he felt his heart and all his veins would burst and flood her with his hot, healing blood. He knew his blood would heal and restore her. She was becoming quieter. 
he thanked the god of mercy that at last she was becoming quieter. His head felt so strange and blazed. Still he held her close, with trembling arms. His blood seemed very strong, enveloping her. And at last she began to draw near to him. She nestled to him. His limbs, his body, took fire and beat up in flames. She clung to him. She cleaved to his body. The flames swept him. He held her in sinews of fire. If she would kiss him, he bent his mouth down, and her mouth, soft and moist, received him. He felt his veins would burst with anguish of thankfulness. His heart was mad with gratefulness. He could pour himself out upon her forever. When they came to themselves, the night was very dark. Two hours had gone by. They lay still and warm and weak, like the newborn, together. And there was a silence almost of the unborn. Only his heart was weeping happily after the pain. He did not understand. He had yielded, given way. There was no understanding. There could be only acquiescence and submission, and tremulous wonder of consummation. The next morning when they woke up, it had snowed. He wondered what was the strange pallor in the air and the unusual tang. Snow was on the grass and the windowsill. It weighed down the black, ragged branches of the yews and smoothed the graves in the churchyard. Soon it began to snow again, and they were shut in. He was glad, for then they were immune in a shadowy silence. There was no world, no time. The snow lasted for some days. On the Sunday they went to church. They made a line of footprints across the garden. He left a flat snowprint of his hand on the wall as he vaulted over. They traced the snow across the churchyard. For three days they had been immune in a perfect love. There were very few people in church, and she was glad. She did not care much for church. She had never questioned any beliefs, and she was, from habit and custom, a regular attendant at morning service. But she had ceased to come with any anticipation. Today, however, in the strangeness of snow, after such consummation of love, she felt expectant again and delighted. She was still in the eternal world. She used, after she went to the high school and wanted to be a lady, wanted to fulfill some mysterious ideal, always to listen to the sermon and to try to gather suggestions. That was all very well for a while. The vicar told her to be good in this way and in that. She went away feeling it was her highest aim to fulfill these injunctions. But quickly this palled. After a short time, she was not very much interested in being good. Her soul was in quest of something, which was not just being good and doing one's best. No, she wanted something else, something that was not her ready-made duty. Everything seemed to be merely a matter of social duty, and never of herself. They talked about her soul, but somehow never managed to rouse or to implicate her soul. 
as yet her soul was not brought in at all. So that whilst she had an affection for Mr. Loverseed, the vicar, and a protective sort of feeling for Cossethay Church, wanting always to help it and defend it, it counted very small in her life. Not but that she was conscious of some unsatisfaction. When her husband was roused by the thought of the churches, then she became hostile to the ostensible church. She hated it for not fulfilling anything in her. The church told her to be good. Very well, she had no idea of contradicting what it said. The church talked about her soul, about the welfare of mankind, as if the saving of her soul lay in her performing certain acts conducive to the welfare of mankind. Well and good, it was so then. Nevertheless, as she sat in church, her face had a pathos and poignancy. Was this what she had come to hear? How by doing this thing and by not doing that, she could save her soul? She did not contradict it. But the pathos of her face gave the lie. There was something else she wanted to hear. It was something else she asked for from the church. But who was she to affirm it? And what was she doing with unsatisfied desires? She was ashamed. She ignored them and left them out of count as much as possible, her underneath yearnings. They angered her. She wanted to be like other people, decently satisfied. He angered her more than ever. Church had an irresistible attraction for him. And he paid no more attention to that part of the service which was church to her than if he had been an angel or a fabulous beast sitting there. He simply paid no heed to the sermon or to the meaning of the service. There was something thick, dark, dense, powerful about him that irritated her too deeply for her to speak of it. The church teaching in itself meant nothing to him. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. It simply did not touch him. It might have been more sounds, and it would have acted upon him in the same way. He did not want things to be intelligible. And he did not care about his trespasses, neither about the trespasses of his neighbor when he was in church. Leave that care for weekdays. When he was in church, he took no more notice of his daily life. It was weekday stuff. As for the welfare of mankind, he merely did not realize that there was any such thing, except on weekdays, when he was good-natured enough. In church, he wanted a dark, nameless emotion, the emotion of all the great mysteries of passion. He was not interested in the thought of himself or of her. Oh, and how that irritated her. He ignored the sermon, he ignored the greatness of mankind, he did not admit the immediate importance of mankind. He did not care about himself as a human being. He did not attach any vital importance to his life in the drafting office, or his life among men. That was just merely the margin to the text. The verity was his connection with Anna and his connection with the church. His real being lay in his dark emotional experience of the infinite, of the absolute and the great mysterious illuminated capitals to the text.
were his feelings with the church. It exasperated her beyond measure. She could not get out of the church the satisfaction he got. The thought of her soul was intimately mixed up with the thought of her own self. Indeed, her soul and her own self were one and the same in her, whereas he seemed simply to ignore the fact of his own self, almost to refute it. He had a soul, a dark, inhuman thing, caring nothing for humanity, so she conceived it. And in the gloom and the mystery of the church, his soul lived and ran free, like some strange, underground thing, abstract. He was very strange to her, and in this church spirit, in conceiving himself as a soul, he seemed to escape and run free of her. In a way, she envied at him, this dark freedom and jubilation of the soul, some strange entity in him. It fascinated her. Again she hated it, and again she despised him, wanted to destroy it in him. This snowy morning he sat with a dark bright face beside her, not aware of her, and somehow she felt he was conveying to strange secret places the love that sprang in him for her. He sat with a dark rapt, half-delighted face, looking at a little stained window. She saw the ruby-colored glass, with the shadow heaped along the bottom from the snow outside, and the familiar yellow figure of the lamb holding the banner, a little darkened now, but in the murky interior strangely luminous, pregnant. She had always liked the little red and yellow window. The lamb, looking very silly and self-conscious, was holding up a forepaw, in the cleft of which was dangerously perched a little flag with a red cross. Very pale yellow, the lamb, with greenish shadows. Since she was a child, she had liked this creature, with the same feeling she felt for the little woolly lambs on green legs that children carried home from the fair each year. She had always liked these toys, and she had the same amused, childish liking for this church lamb. Yet she had always been uneasy about it. She was never sure that this lamb with a flag did not want to be more than it appeared. So she half mistrusted it. There was a mixture of dislike in her attitude to it. Now, by a curious gathering, knitting of his eyes, the faintest tension of ecstasy on his face, he gave her the uncomfortable feeling that he was in correspondence with the creature, the lamb in the window. A cold wonder came over her. Her soul was perplexed. There he sat, motionless, timeless, with the faint, bright tension on his face. What was he doing? What connection was there between him and the lamb in the glass? Suddenly it gleamed to her dominant, this lamb with the flag. Suddenly she had a powerful mystic experience. The power of the tradition seized on her, she was transported to another world. And she hated it, resisted it. Instantly, it was only a silly lamb in the glass again. And dark, violent hatred of her husband swept up in her. What was he doing, sitting there gleaming, carried away, soulful? She shifted sharply. She knocked him as she pretended to pick up her glove. She groped among his feet. 
He came to, rather bewildered, exposed. Anybody but her would have pitied him. She wanted to rend him. He did not know what was amiss, what he had been doing. As they sat at dinner in their cottage, he was dazed by the chill of antagonism from her. She did not know why she was so angry, but she was incensed. "'Why do you never listen to the sermon?' she asked, seething with hostility and violation. "'I do,' he said. "'You don't. You don't hear a single word.' He retired into himself to enjoy his own sensation. There was something subterranean about him, as if he had an underworld refuge. The young girl hated to be in the house with him when he was like this. After dinner, he retired into the parlor, continuing in the same state of abstraction, which was a burden intolerable to her. Then he went to the bookshelf and took down books to look at, that she had scarcely glanced over. He sat absorbed over a book on the illuminations in old missals, and then over a book on paintings in churches. Italian, English, French, and German. He had, when he was sixteen, discovered a Roman Catholic bookshop where he could find such things. He turned the leaves in absorption, absorbed in looking, not thinking. He was like a man whose eyes were in his chest, she said of him later. She came to look at the things with him. Half they fascinated her. She was puzzled, interested, and antagonistic. It was when she came to pictures of the Pietà that she burst out. I do think they're loathsome, she cried. What? he said, surprised, abstracted. Those bodies with slits in them, posing to be worshipped. You see, it means the sacraments, the bread, he said slowly. Does it? she cried. Then it's worse. I don't want to see your chest slit, nor to eat your dead body, even if you offer it to me. Can't you see it's horrible? It isn't me. It's Christ. What if it is? It's you. And it's horrible. You wallowing in your own dead body and thinking of eating it in the sacrament. You've to take it for what it means. It means your human body put up to be slit and killed and then worshipped. What else? They lapsed into silence. His soul grew angry and aloof. And I think that lamb in church, she said, is the biggest joke in the parish. She burst into a poof of ridiculing laughter. It might be, to those that see nothing in it, he said. You know it's the symbol of Christ, of his innocence and sacrifice. Whatever it means, it's a lamb, she said. And I like lambs, too much to treat them as if they had to mean something. As for the Christmas tree flag, no. And again she poofed with mockery. It's because you don't know anything, he said violently, harshly. Laugh at what you know, not at what you don't know. What don't I know? What things mean? And what does it mean? He was reluctant to answer her. He found it difficult. What does it mean? she insisted. It means the triumph of the resurrection. She hesitated, baffled, 
A fear came upon her. What were these things? Something dark and powerful seemed to extend before her. Was it wonderful after all? But no, she refused it. Whatever it may pretend to mean, what it is is a silly, absurd toy lamb with a Christmas tree flag ledged on its paw. And if it wants to mean anything else, it must look different from that. End of section 16. Recording by Nancy Halper, Summit, New Jersey.